Welcome to Buddha the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Julie Chimes. And um, Julie's the sort of person that you interact with her, a few, a f with her a few times, and you feel like she's an old chum. She's just such a kind of friendly, <laughs> delightful person. So I've really been enjoying getting to know Julie a little bit over the last few weeks. Um, and uh, I also read her book, which is called A Stranger in Paradise. And Julie um, had a, a, a spiritual awakening of sorts uh, in a way that most of us would uh, not choose to do. Um, she was a victim of a murderer or an attempt at, uh, of someone who was attempting to murder her, um, who stabbed her repeatedly and uh, nearly killed her. And in the process of that, Julie had a rather remarkable experience which changed her life. And she can tell that story better than I can, so I'm going to turn it right over to Julie. Oh, and incidentally, uh, apparently other people who have interviewed Ju Julie really wanted to focus on the murder itself or the, the you know attempted murder and get into as much gory detail as possible. And uh, that won't be our focus, although we'll have our share of gory detail. But I think in the context of this show, um, the... Um, you know the spiritual experience she had as a result of this, and the, c the kind of the inner transformation that occurred in her life are far more significant. So that's what we'll primarily focus on. So thanks, Julie. Welcome, and uh, thanks for bearing with me as we overcame all sorts of technical difficulties to get this thing going. Hello, Rick. <laughs> well, it's a real, it is a real pleasure to be here at last. And yeah. I'm thinking of going into the technology business. <laughs> you, <laughs> well, you've made me an expert. Yeah, really. <laughs> so where would you like to start? Um, you want to give a little bit of background, you know, before the the incident, uh, just to sort of give us a context of what your life was like and where you came from, what you've been through, and all that stuff. Okay, um, potted history of the life. Yes, I think th I think the most uh, the most interesting thing about all of this is that I wasn't looking for spiritual experience. I wasn't on, or I wasn't aware of being on any path or searching. I was simply a businesswoman in London doing what in the 80s I believed was um, the things that were important. I had a career. I had a good relationship with uh, my partner who was a doctor. Um, and all the accoutrements of a, of, of a successful life of that particular era. And yet there was something within me that wasn't happy with all of that as well. I, there's something was missing, but I didn't know what. And I, but I wasn't searching for it. But I, I was aware that having all of these things was not necessarily making me as content and as happy as I thought I should be. Um, so in in that context, we were. Uh, I had a place in in London, where, which was sort of my business home, and then I shared a cottage in the countryside with my doctor partner, um, Tony, and I was there sort of at weekends and in and in between times. Uh, I'd just taken a few days break from a really busy time working in, I was in marketing and uh, working a lot with the media, so up against big deadlines in the days before computers and mobile phones, would you believe? So it's all probably quite a lot more stressful in some ways and a lot more fun in others. Um, I'd taken some time out and I'd been in Spain uh, with my mother and my stepfather just to have a bit of a breathing space. And during that time, my mother and I, we had an extraordinary few days together. We were very 
very close and very sweet, uh, our relationship. We had a lot of fun and we were doing some reminiscing. When the time came for me to get on the plane to go back to the UK, uh, my mother begged me not to go. And she insisted on coming to Malaga Airport with me. And at the airport, again, she she said, I something's wrong and I, I don't know what it is, but please, please don't get on that plane. Your and mother had remember, actually, this is totally irrelevant uh, interjection, but your mother had been Miss Great Britain, hadn't she? Yes, she'd been Miss Great Britain. She, she was a great beauty in her day and had married a... Um, a, a pretty infamous <laughs> comedian, <laughs> genius <laughs> in his time. So she'd been quite a lady. And she'd always uh, been very very tuned in to something, very psychic, very aware, mm. and lived a, 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 a highly interesting life. And on this particular day, it wasn't like her to get emotional. And I mean, usually she would be glad to see the back of me, frankly. Um, so for her to be begging me not to go and to be tearful was unusual. And uh, at the airport, she, she, she had a crucifix uh, that she used to wear, a gold crucifix. And she took it off and she said, please wear it. And I said, look, it's not really my thing um, to wear something like that. And she said, no, no, I beg you, put it on. And to make her feel better, I did. And I can remember standing there and I was joking with her saying, you know, for goodness sake, if you think the plane is going to crash, this is the moment to tell me and I won't <laughs> get on it. And she said, no, 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 it's not that, it's something else. But she said, look, I don't know what it is, but just take great care. Hmm. I and remember hearing a story of Elizabeth Taylor actually being on an airplane ready to take off someplace and having this very strong premonition and getting off the plane and the plane did indeed crash after that. But, <gasps> Yeah. I, I'm qu I'm quite sure we can tune into these things, and you know I've I've subsequently heard amazing stories of of this. Yeah. It takes great it takes great courage though, because even though you know someone you really love is telling you, um, you know to, to actually step out of an airline queue and say I'm not going on that plane, I think you have to be very brave. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't brave enough not to go back. I I I, I wanted to stay. I was having a marvelous time in Spain. And to go back to wintertime England, you know, in the gloom and the rain and the, a job that wasn't fulfilling and, and a relationship that maybe wasn't it, um, you know, too many questions. I needed more time, but I didn't allow myself that. So first hurdle failed. Um, I got on plane, got back. Uh, the following day, uh, I had a lot to do when I got back in England and I'd got appointments and business things to sort out. And I was actually in the cottage with my boyfriend and we were awoken um, very early in the morning I think about half five or something in the morning um, and he wasn't on duty you know he he was a local doctor with a um, a surgery of all local people and in those days they used to cover nights and weekends this on a rotor basis and if there was any sort of emergency or anyone needing a doctor in that time they could phone directly to your house um, so the phone ringing was uh, always in my mind. If the phone rang early, it meant there was some sort of emergency. And sure enough, it was the police calling to say that they'd taken a lady off a London-bound train. And the only number she would give was this number, which was his number. Eventually, she'd given the number of his uh, surgery. The answer phone had gone on to the duty doctor. The duty doctor, who wasn't my partner, said, well you know what, this lady, if, if she knows the senior partner, maybe it's better you phone him because he may have more information. And so through a rather bizarre series of phone calls, we get woken up to say that 
a lady had been taken off a train for behaving in a, in a rather odd manner and not doing anything um, to break the law, but doing in a sort of anti-social anti behavior. Didn't you and say in your did... book that she was running through the train naked or some such thing, or am I thinking of something else? No, you're on the right track. I mean, oh. I know some people <laughs> might think that was very sociable. <laughs> yeah. I, I, should, I should think that would be against the law in Great Britain. Maybe you're more liberal than we are. <laughs> but, uh, well, she, but she actually she went and locked herself in the lavatory on the on the train on the train, and then she threw her clothes out of the window. Oh, I see. So by the time the train stopped at, at the next station, um, she'd kind of been reported, and the station police went and and got her off. And mm -hmm. I think so they managed to go down the track and get some of her clothes back. <laughs> and. Um, you know, I mean, had I been told any of this on the day, let me tell you, my destiny may have been very different, but nobody thought to tell me these little details. Um, so this woman, uh, taken off the train, phone call to my partner, Tony, and he said, well, look, I, I am not on duty. Uh, I don't really know this woman. Um, so you, can you bring her to my surgery and bring her down later this morning, if, you, if it's okay, keep her in, in your custody, and then I can see what we, we can do with her and I can maybe contact her if you if somebody's behaving in a way that indicates that they may have you know psychiatric problems it's it, there's a quite a lot of procedures that have to be followed in the UK and I'm sure in your country yeah. to actually do something with that person so he needed to follow procedures and he needed time because he'd already got a, you know his appointments were completely full that morning and uh, so when he did eventually go off to work um, I said to him, look, you take great care. I think this woman, I've just got a funny feeling about her. Take great care. And he sort of laughed and disappeared off. And at this point, I'll give a little bit more background that he'd met this woman on a course of a sort of self-awareness course that he had gone on um, because a lot of his patients had been asking him about it and saying that they'd heard some very interesting and good things about it and did he know anything about it in terms of healing and um, what sort of what did you do on it and he had no idea so he phoned up the organizers and asked them if he could go and watch and they said um, hello I don't think it's that sort of course you come along and you participate and so he said well okay I'll do that because I'm curious about this I want to learn more and patients are asking me and then I would be able to give them my direct experience and he'd gone along on to that course which I think had about 70 people on it and this woman had been one of the participants but she was on it uh, nothing to do with him but it, she was there and so that was the context in which he had met her in, in at that time in our lives so um, and she had sort of fixated on him and I guess gotten a crush on him or something. She definitely got a crush on him because she used to keep phoning the house and um, and and then hanging up if I answered the phone. And right. you know, th th there was definite. Again, looking back, there were signs that her behaviour was um, becoming a little bit strange towards him, and yeah. that's why I had said take care when he'd gone off. Uh, but there was nothing to indicate that she was. a a dangerous person she was just a lonely woman she was very educated well spoken she'd been a, a model in her day and you know she'd been a good-looking lady yeah um, she's behaving like a normal American politician okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never met any but I've heard, Rick, <laughs> I've heard. Um, <laughs> so uh, yes so she
she, she um, my partner saw her. In, um, he was actually bought by the police at nine o'clock in the morning, which is significant. They didn't bring her later. They bought her as he started work. And so he didn't have time to see her rather than just for a few moments. And he saw her and she seemed, you know, a little bit, uh, she'd calmed down. He hadn't been told that she'd been running up and down a train naked. Um, and she was very pleased to see him. And <laughs> she said, uh, and you have, to, you have to remember too that there was a practice manager, you know, the lady who was the manager, there were nurses, other doctors there, patients. Nobody sort of came out carrying a crucifix going, get back. You know, she just was behaving... Um, I, you know, yeah. by then she was a pretty ordinary person. Um, she said, look, I, I, I'm really confused about many things. And so Tony said, well, look, you know, I want to give you more time. I need to talk to you, uh, but you're going to have to wait. The, 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 the manager will make you some coffee and et cetera. You just, can you, we can put you in one of the rooms. And she said, well, you know, what I'd really like to do is could I, could I go and, and be with, with Julie? Uh, because she, I was very understanding. I, I had met her once at a little sort of gathering um, of these people on the course where they met for a supper and I'd been invited along. And she remembered that and she said, I, I, I really like Judy. Could I be with her? And, and would that be all right? I'd, I'd rather be in a home than waiting here. Now, that might seem absolutely horrifying by today's standards to, to think that a doctor would send a patient to his home. But in, in those days, it was actually quite normal. Our front room was often used as a waiting room for private patients. I was used to that happening. So it, it, I received a phone call um, from Tony, and he said, look, could, uh, could this lady, could she be with you and wait with you? She's a little bit disturbed and confused about her life, and she just needs company, and I, and I won't be long. So this was my second hurdle, um, <laughs> my second test. You know, God exists as much in the word no as the word yes, but I didn't know that then. I, I cancelled my appointments and I said, sure, she can come. Mm -hmm. So the practice manager drove her just down the road to our house. I opened the door to welcome her and uh, brought her in, sat her down, sat with her and asked her if she, we had a, a, a nice sort of big kitchen dining room, lovely open plan room. And I said, now, you know, can I get you a drink? You, you look like you're freezing cold because um, she was shivering. And she said, yeah, I, I'd like iced water. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And um, I, I was just making myself a coffee. So I said, you, you know, I've got the kettle on here. Can I make you a hot drink? And I put the fire on. And then she, she looked quite tearful. And uh, I just went up to her and put my arm around her and said, well, you know, come on. What 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 do you really need? And she I said she said I haven't slept for for two nights. I said well look I tell you what we have a spare room here. Why don't you go there? I'll, I'll put a the electric blanket on. You can be warm. You can rest. And then when Tony comes back, he can take care of you and talk to you. And you know don't worry. You've got all the time in the world. And she said. Uh, that's absolutely what she wanted, and she was so grateful. So I went up the stairs to turn the electric blanket on, check the room was okay. I went up another flight of stairs into the attic. I had my office. I phoned the um, Tony to see how long he would be, and um, I couldn't get through. The lines were engaged too. So I came back down the stairs, 
And the last thing I'd actually said to her was, look, if you, if you change your mind about a hot drink, help yourself. And I heard a, a kind of rattle and a noise in the kitchen, and I thought, oh, she's making a coffee. I heard the cutlery drawer, and I figured she was, you know, getting a spoon. And I felt pleased, you know, and then I... Uh, I was a lot younger then, so I went charging, running down the stairs to go into our kitchen. And I always used to jump down the last few stairs. It sort of turned into the kitchen. And as I ran down, I heard this most extraordinary scream, but a really guttural scream. And in a split second, you know, you, I had no time to work out why, why, was the, why the scream happened. I just remember the most excruciating pain um, as if someone had taken a sledgehammer to my solar plexus. And when I looked, when I kind of opened my eyes um, after the shock of this pain, I saw that this woman had come up the stairs. She'd actually taken my biggest carving knife and had plunged it straight into my middle, um, which is not what I was expecting, No, <laughs> to say the least. So thus began my Tuesday morning. Um, well, you might as well continue the story. Every, I'm sure you've got everybody engaged at this point. Um, now, this is interesting. Now, you, you seem to be reacting cu quite emotionally to this right now. Are you feeling a strong emotion right now? Well... When I ever I say this, it, there's still the kind of body memory in the yeah, cells yeah. of the impact. Uh -huh. and and this happened like 20 years ago or something, This right? is 20, 20 years ago, and I'm not in any way, um, uh, I, I'm not reacting in the sense of, oh my God, isn't that terrible? How could that have happened to me? It's more just this, this shadow of memory in, in the body and a sense that, that any human being could do that to another. Yeah. Is, is quite shocking, um, you know. So, and talking to you somehow, you, you know, you're very different to other interviewers, Rick, because there's a, a depth in you that I don't, I don't normally encounter. So I, I, I get a lot of empathy from you. I can feel that. Oh, thank you. So back to the staircase. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Um, so, yeah. So there was an in, 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 immense shock. And not only that, this uh, woman was calling out that she had to save the world in the name of Jesus Christ and that she had to kill me to save the world. So this was like an added dimension to the experience that not only was somebody trying to kill me, but they had deemed me so utterly evil that, you know, I, if I wasn't going to die, the, the world would, would end. Mm. Um, so all of that was sort of racing through my, my brain and my being. But what also happened in that moment was um, some part of me exploded beyond this body awareness into a completely different place. Like I had an overview. I suddenly was watching the scene from, a, from on high, looking at myself, looking at the the woman looking at the knife, looking at the whole scenario from a place beyond. And I thought, wow, that's it, I'm dead. And it wasn't just like you were hovering near the ceiling from that perspective seeing it. It was a different dimension of beyond you're referring to, right? 
a completely different dimension, as if I were um, in a, almost in a theatre, in, in a in a you know watching a movie, mm-hmm. watching it from from a distance, seeing a movie screen from quite far away, and being fully aware of what was happening on the screen and engaged with that, but in a place where there was no pain, no sound effects because there was a lot of sound on the stairs of, you know, knife and flesh and screams. Um, But beyond all of that, and in a place of incredible love Mm. and great (laughs) humour, just a sense of laughter. Um, Like, oh, you know, is this the way you've decided to end this lifetime? This is so corny, you know, this is just... What a way! Couldn't you have been like a B uh, movie or something? Yeah, yeah, it was like it was like you know. In, I I don't know about in the states, but in in the UK, you're back in the sort of sixties. We used to have these really dreadful horror movies. They were oh, so yeah, bad. We you, could, you could see you could see the kind of the ropes pulling the bats, and it it felt like that. It was just so ham. And um, anyway, mm, watching it from this other dimension was was very very funny and also very poignant to because you you know you hear one hears about life flashing before one and and these the near-death experience which is now common parlance but in back then it was not not a phrase I'd ever heard I hadn't heard of tunnels and light and and it's not what happened to me um what what happened to me was different I I was in another dimension I was watching and it was as if I I had somebody with me who I intuitively knew really deeply loved me Mm. um and wanted me to survive and wanted me to go through this whole process of being stabbed and to live through it because they told me that I I, I was not um, meant to die and that I had to go back into the body and I was arguing with them um, <laughs> 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 you know they, uh, there is no way I am going back into that because I could see what was happening to it and, she, um, and it wasn't just the one stab meanwhile she was stabbing you repeatedly right yeah, it was just a friend. Let's use the word. Um, it was frenzied, frenzied knife attack. Over and over um, again. And I knew I'd got. If I was going to survive, I had to get off the, the staircase. Um, and I didn't see how that would be possible from this this bigger perspective. But but at the same time, there was this incredible love. And then I was back on the stairs, looking through my eyes at this woman. You know, like I was in and out of this state. It was very hard to write about it, Rick, because so many things happened all at once, and I went beyond time, beyond space, beyond logic, uh, and then to try and condense this into the language of making sense out of it so that I could explain what happened is is really difficult, Um, and it's still difficult, as you can hear. Um, But I looked at this woman through, through my physical eyes, and I just found the words came out of my mouth that I said I, I I love you 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 can't kill me because I love you and you and said I, that I, she would have actually heard you say that you weren't just this wasn't just yes. a mental, mental thing it was actual you physically spoke those words I physically spoke those words uh-huh. and I I don't know whether she heard or not mm. uh, but what I know is that within me the feeling was uh, like a, an explosion inside me of, of of wonder that we were 
somehow in a in a, locked in this dance of death but it was actually a very beautiful dance and that I could not in any way hate her for what she was doing to me mm. and I felt this immense compassion um, I saw her life I saw I saw a great sadness, loneliness, bleakness in her. I saw her madness, her insanity. I saw her life sort of through my eyes. I could see it and through my being I could feel it. And then with that understanding I could only have compassion for her. I knew that I didn't want to die on that staircase. And then I went kind of back into the bigger perspective again. I kind of went out again. and. I found myself standing on a on a hillside, looking at um, a, a, a monk in these wonderful shimmering robes, and he was giving a, a lesson, like martial arts type of lesson, to two young boys, <laughs> like well, you know the old kung fu movies, ah, grasshopper, <laughs> and um, and but he was teaching them how to deflect an attack if someone was running at you with a knife. Mm how to or a, a weapon how to deflect the energy and uh, use the energy of the person attacking you against them and he, he gave this demonstration and then he looked at me whatever I was because I obviously wasn't in my body but he could clearly see something hmm. and he said very simple it's very simple and then I was back in the body again looking at this woman lunging at me with the knife and I I just put my hand up and I just literally very gently knocked her to one side um, knocked her arm and she of course fell because she was coming at me with all her might up the stairs and she fell forward and the knife embedded itself in the staircase yeah. and I was able to then just kind of slide around her on I, I, I couldn't stand up I got this massive injury in my middle but I I kind of slid down into into the kitchen huh. And then the next, what actually was about 15 minutes, I'm told, um, was this in and out of, of body state where I was being given instructions. I mean, someone was shouting in my ear, like, you know, as if you, I can hear you through my headphones. Someone was shouting, don't forget to breathe. Breathing helps, you know. <laughs> so some wise shot. I go, oh, right. <laughs> uh, um, and then I, step by step I was guided through my home and then I'm I have to tell another piece of the story here because it's so significant that um, a few weeks beforehand before this happened I had been in London uh, on, at a business meeting and I was in central London and it was absolutely pouring with rain and I'd gone to this meeting and the uh, person that I had an appointment with was delayed by about an hour and his secretary told me um, would, I, would I like to wait because it was an important meeting and, and, and I didn't have time to go back to my office and then come out again so I said well yeah but I'll, I'll, go, I'll find a cafe or something and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back in an hour and it was in an area of London in the West End where there actually weren't any cafes and it was in a place called Belgrave Square but I remembered that when I was a child, my mother had taken me to Belgrave Square because it was the headquarters of the British Spiritualist Association. And I remember she'd gone a couple of times. And I also remembered that this building, it was a very grand old London building, it had a library. And I, I don't know why I remembered on that day, because I'd been to Belgrave Square 
many, many times subsequently in my life. But I thought, I wonder if that library is still there. I'll go and see, and I can shelter from the rain and read for an hour. So I found the building. It was still the headquarters of the British Spiritualist Association, and I, I went in, and there was a reception area, and uh, the woman looked up, and she said, ah, you must be the 3 o'clock appointment. And I said, no, no, I, I don't have an appointment. I just uh, I wondered if the library is here. Could, could I have a look in the library? And she said, yes, yes, the library is still here. And she said, is it your first time, dear? And I thought I was going into a brothel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> said, no, no I, I really don't have an appointment. I'm, I, but I didn't want to say. I just want to stay out of the rain and keep dry and, and read for an hour. I'm killing time. Um, and this woman, she was so persistent. She'd got in her bean that I was her three o'clock appointment with some medium. And uh, I actually got so... Um, embarrassed by her insistence that I just said, look, I'll take the appointment. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so, so completely um, yeah, not, not interested, not wanting to know anything, no, no focus or question in my mind. I went into, up some stairs and down a corridor and entered into a room and there's this very nice gentleman sitting there with amazing blue eyes, really intense blue eyes who looked at me and asked me to sit down and then, and then he went straight into um, talking about you know, uh, my my grandfather and describing people in, in such an accurate way that he he got my attention. Yeah, he really had my attention. And then he he went very quiet and he said, "There's only one thing that we want to say to you: change your front door." Hmm. He said, "I beg you." change your front door and then he started to hammer his fist on on the little table and as if someone was telling him you know shouting at him and then he was shouting at me you must change your door you must 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 change your front door and i was thinking i've just spent however many pounds to be getting diy instructions from spirit <laughs> you know how profound is that change it would your have front been door. more helpful if he said don't let any strange women in your house but anyway well, exactly, but this is <laughs> this is so significant because uh, I had a front door sitting in the garage. It had been sitting there for for six months to the cottage. Neither mm, neither uh, of us had actually bothered to get it done. We'd been too busy, and we had such a tiny entranceway into this cottage, the little kind of porch area before you got into the main house, that the door opened inwards and it trapped you. If you had to kind of stand behind the door to let someone get in, and there was no room um, for two people in a hallway. It was almost, you know, and if, if so, back to the day of the attack, when I actually got to that hallway, I had changed the door so that it opened outwards. I'd followed uh. the instruction from spirit, and that was a significant factor in saving my life. Yeah, you never would have been able to open it inwards. No way, because I was actually on my hands and knees and I was slumped in that hallway. I, I was a weight against the door, so I right. could never have opened it inwards and moved myself out of the way with somebody attacking me. It would have been impossible. It would have been uh -huh. impossible. And she was still attacking you all the way to the door? I mean, had she managed to get the knife out of the stairs and keep coming? Oh, yeah, she just followed me all the way. She yanked really? it out of the stairs or whatever and just kept following just... and stabbing as you crawled toward the door. Yeah, just relentless. I, I actually had managed to get up to my feet at one point, and and because that's what I was told to do, get on your feet. 
and um, and I had my hands above my head holding the knife in her she was quite a lot taller than me mm-hmm. um, holding the knife above my head with all her and I used her force like to help me walk backwards I see she was it, pushing it, you along she, so she was actually pushing me so it was really quite helpful <laughs> she got me to the porch yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but there I collapsed again I, I'm laughing because you know it's so bizarre in, in one way and I'm here you know there's a happy ending so yeah, yeah. I, ca- I can laugh now um, in the hallway the next thing that happened was when I, I was actually slumped um, she grabbed hold of my, my, kind of my sweater to bring me nearer to her with one hand so that she could put the knife in me with the other and as she grabbed me this crucifix that my my mother had given me kept flew out of uh, just flew out of my sweater and because all this was being done in in the name of Jesus um, she stopped dead when she saw the crucifix It, it like fixated her and again that was another significant thing because I managed to uh by this point, I have to say that you know the knife had actually gone through my right hand uh, as I put it up to protect myself. But with my, my my left hand, I could kind of reach up behind me, and I actually reached up and managed to lift myself up and open the latch on the door so that it opened outwards, and I fell out. Mm. And um, <clears throat> and I the only time I I had an opportunity in that moment that I could have turned the knife on her. You know, there was just that moment in self-defense where she was still fixated. Uh, and there was no way I could harm her. You, you could know, have, people... You could have taken the knife away from her and stabbed her with it, you're saying? Yeah, I could have... Cu- I, I don't know that I could have got it out of her hand, but I could have turned it round right. on her. Yeah. Maybe. Um, and in self-defense, you know, just to... Anything to stop her. And right. yet... And yet I couldn't. I could... I just somehow even in my desperate situation knew that I couldn't harm her but what I could do is as she lunged with the knife out out of the out of the door I I, I used my body to just slam the door on her wrist mm. you know just to try and shut the door and then I I was calling for help I had a quite a long driveway down to the road and the cars and people were sort of, you know going about their business at the end of this drive and and I was calling out to all and sundry that uh, for help, um, and and I thought at this point it would be like the Hollywood movie, you know, that that somebody would come and rescue me. But I, what I actually saw, that was people were running away, um, and then in all honesty, had I been one of those people, I would have run away. I'm pretty sure, because by this time the woman with the knife was back and she got it in my back she stabbed me in my back as I w- was crawling down the drive um, and it, it it kind of got stuck in my back so which in a way was another good thing because it meant she couldn't do any more damage and it she was trying to pull it out and I was like, just trying to crawl down this drive which I did and um, all Must the time stuck between I, some ribs or something got stuck in my muscles apparently uh-huh. my muscles contracted around it in, in, in my my shoulder blade uh-huh. and uh, and it had gone down it actually into my spine uh-huh. um, so and I, I I was still having a conversation with this being who was telling me that I was going to live that it was going to be all right uh, that I had to keep going 
And I did. I just, uh, I've always been obedient, you know. She's followed the instructions. <laughs> Carried on down the drive. So you're um, crawling I, on your hands and knees down the driveway. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then I figured that, um, okay, if, if no one was going to run up and, and help me, if I could get in the drive and actually get in the road, the cars would have to stop because then my body would be in the road. Right. Uh, 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 it was a good plan, but the cars just drove around me. They drove Holy around. Holy mackerel. Wow. Um, I think it must have been such a hideous sight. And what do you do? How do you help? Uh, I'm sure people were going to get to telephones. There, there were no mobile phones then, you know. Mm. Um, and then uh, uh, this mad creature decided that she was going to decapitate me. And um, and then I lost consciousness for a while, um, for, for just a little while. I, everything did just go black. And... The vast space, the lights, the love, everything had gone. And that was the most desolate moment. Uh, I didn't well, know whether I was alive, whether I was dead, whether the voice... You, so went. you lost body consciousness, but you were still conscious in some way. Well, I had to, because I was saying, well, who is aware that there's nothing? Yeah, yeah. Because if there's nothing, no one would, nothing would be aware. Uh, so... This extraordinary so me mental question. process was still yeah, going the, on. Yeah. So, so, so the processes were still whirring. And then, then I, I, I opened my eyes, and once again I was back in body, conscious body, in the body, and very aware of. And I could hear all these people arguing. Uh, so, uh, what had happened was a young man who had uh, been, uh, he's a builder, and he was on his way to have an early lunch. And he'd got to a bridge, the railway bridge, which was near to my home. I was very high-sided to stop people throwing themselves off it. And he got onto the bridge, and he thought he heard a scream. And he turned around, and then it was silent, and he heard nothing. Then he heard another scream. And in that moment, he thought, ah, I've left my jacket with my money in back at the building site. Uh, so he needed to go back. He turned around walked off the bridge and as he came off the bridge he saw there I was um, lying in the road with this woman trying to cut my head off mm. and he had with no fear at all and I suppose this was the Hollywood movie he just walked up to her and this is when I regained my awareness I heard him I didn't see him but I heard him saying to me you're going to be all right love you're going to be all right uh, very softly spoken and then he turned to this woman he said no, just put that knife down just put it down and give it give it to me and everything stopped and then I heard people and voices and um, and, and I heard people arguing um, saying has anyone called an ambulance and someone else said well there's no point they're on strike um, and I'm thinking well this is helpful so <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah and then I I, I remember you know just thinking about um, like studying biology and um, how much blood can a human being lose before they die and um, getting myself into the emergency position because no one else was going to do that for me and and then I heard like these very the sound of stiletto heels running across the road sort of and and a very well-spoken voice sort of this face came into focus and it was a woman from who lived over the road um, whose husband was a doctor and and I heard her say is there anything I can do dear <laughs> <laughs> and, 
So I phone home, yeah. and I was I I found it very difficult to uh, speak. But I said I asked her if she could phone Tony, get Tony, a because he was a doctor, b because he was my partner, and I thought, well, he'll know what to do. But despite this shower of people. I really got the worst accident onlookers it was possible to get. And somebody said, well, do you think we ought to cover her? And, and then I heard a man saying, I'm not putting my jacket on her. Get ruined with blood. Um, and idiots. then I, and I, I was so cold. I was just so cold and frightened, really. And the, the, the pain was starting to become unbearable. Now, and meanwhile, I, had, this, had the woman <laughs> been restrained and... Her name was Helen, wasn't it? Yes. Well, she, she had been taken away at that point. No, nope, the police hadn't arrived. But um, I mean, she wasn't still stabbing you at this point. No, she no, she she actually, uh, um, I didn't know at the time, but subsequently found out she had been she'd gone back into the house. What she'd actually done is gone and got another knife. Uh -huh. She came out at this point when the woman had gone off to phone Tony and the accident onlookers were arguing. She had got another knife from the kitchen, came back out, had another, and tried to have another go at me. But she was pulled off by this young man for a second time. Then the police came. Yeah. Um, I then heard a of this the high heel shoes coming back across the road, and uh, this <laughs> this woman bent right down low and in my ear said, um, "The phone was engaged. <laughs> it was busy. I couldn't get through." So, um, but fortunately, somebody else had got onto Tony, and um, I heard I I actually recognised the sound of the engine and the squeal of the brakes. A wonderful sequence of events, an amazing sequence of events, got me to a hospital. The police driver, uh, the police are not allowed to take accident victims in their car, but this young man had just qualified on an advanced driving test. This young driver and he said you know ambulance they were on strike um, we're putting her in the back of the police car and I'll, I'll take the consequences and he drove apparently at you know very very high speeds he also had just come from the main and obvious hospital <clears throat> to take me from he'd just been there and he knew that there was a massive um, uh, traffic accident there was queues delay you know the roads were blocked you couldn't get there so he went back through the back lanes to another hospital which was near to his hometown which was only five minutes further in distance and um, but you know the roads were clear and he got me there and at this point my my partner Tony had also you know he, he had said I'll take her in my car if no one else will do it I don't care but we've just got to get her to the hospital and he heard very clearly that there were 15 minutes he just knew that's how long he'd got to save me and he, he could hear it counting down in his head 15 and we minutes. arrived at the uh, yeah right. uh, we arrived at the the hospital I, I can be, just I remember the trip in the in the, the police car but again I, I felt like I was at the end of a very long tunnel you know just hearing voices yeah I could hear Tony shouting at me to stay stay there stay with him stay conscious and the police driver was shouting at me as well you know shouting at me to come on we're nearly there you can do this you've got this far you know, they were really encouraging me to hang on to life and the hospital was about to be filmed on one of these reality TV shows 
And so all the doctors were there and the surgeons, all in their best kind of whites and, and the nurses were there and they were ready to be filmed. And, the, and so they were all on duty, which is a miracle, believe me, in, in, in the UK. for the Because the injuries I had, I needed different, different experts for different bits of me. And um, so we got to the, to the hospital as the last minute... Um, we, we did it. We got there. Mm -hmm. And they patched you up. <laughs> Gave you some blood. Frankenstein's bride, Rick. Yeah, they did yeah. patch me up. My yeah. And of course, in reading your book, I read the whole thing about your recovery and all, and, and uh, you know, all the various dr dramas and, and humorous incidents you went through during all that. Um, but... Uh, so that's the basic story of the incident. Um, now let's shift gears, if we may, and um, kind of discuss this sort of other dimension that that came into it. You know, this voice that was guiding you, and and uh, you know, as much as you can possibly say about that. I think that the most imp fascinating thing for me was that it it didn't stop. It wasn't as if it, it it came during the during the extreme need, which I I know happens and has happened to to many thousands of people, but it stayed with me. So whilst I was in the hospital recovering, I was having these amazing dialogues with this being beyond form, mm -hmm. and a discourse, and I was drifting in and out of dreams, very lucid, vivid dreaming, which I I'd always had very vivid dreams, but these were very specific dreams where I was being taken to uh, like a classroom situation um, in, 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 as if I were in a, some sort of university of life where I was listening to lectures about the meaning of life, the nature of life, the nature of forgiveness, compassion, why things happen the way they do, um, the purpose of human life just listening 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 and then then lying in my hospital bed and then back at home when i was recovering going in and out of dialogues with um with this being i called him veritas because it just seemed to encompass what it was that means uh, truth I, doesn't it yeah just yeah. truth it was just a high a higher truth mm -hmm. and i i kept hearing this voice saying it's time to follow your highest truth it's time to follow your highest truth, and I didn't know what that meant. You know, I have a, what, what, does, what does this mean, highest truth? So, everything in me had woken up to the fact that there was another dimension to this thing called life, and I, I promised, lying in the hospital, I promised myself that if I made it through, if I really did live, and if I survived all of these injuries and all the complications, that. I would dedicate my life to finding out what highest truth meant. Hmm. And so, how has that gone? <laughs> oh, has it been? It's You've been had one heck of a ride. Twenty years or so. Twenty to, years to work on that. Twenty, 20 years, still working on it. Oh uh -huh. my goodness me! Yes, it's it's just been extraordinary. I knew I had to end the life I was living then, and I had to do it graciously and with integrity. But I, I, I just somehow it seemed utterly unimportant the, the quest of the money-making 80s you know where uh, ruthless pr pursuit of more seemed obscene 
to me. The world was so vivid, Rick, after coming, when I came out of hospital, everything was so bright, just so bright and in some ways quite hideous. Yeah, I just saw, um, I saw an ugliness and then behind the ugliness I saw this light and I, that was the only thing I wanted to know about, the light behind, the light. I could sort of see through things for a, for a while. It didn't stay, but, but for a while I had this kind of extraordinary vision um, and I could see through people. Could just sort of look in their eyes and somehow... You don't mean no. in a literal sense, so that if they were standing against a tree, you'd see through them and you'd see the tree behind them, but you mean more you'd see the subtler aspect of them or something? I, I, I mean both. 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 Okay. I, I was seeing a subtle aspect to people, but I could also I could also uh, look in a room, and then the room would disappear. Mm -hmm. It would just it would sort of fade out, and other things would start to emerge. Other other scenery would emerge. Like what? Um, like I'd be in suddenly I would be in a room, and then in the next moment I'd be in countryside, on a hillside, on a mountain. Mm. Um, uh, and what was the significance of that I mean some pe people would say well she's just hallucinating but you know what what do you feel that really signified well I, I, I could put it down and, and one would put it down to hallucinating in the hospital with we you know with pain-killing um, drugs, drugs being pumped into me sure where well, you could say that but then why would it have happened and happened subsequently and that was what I had to ask myself all right I have I don't drink I don't smoke and I don't take anything um, so what is this what is this happening to me and and why yes what is the significance of it so the first thing is that it it showed me over and over in different circumstances that the fabric that I had considered so solid and so real of this earth is just a veil which you can put your hand through sometimes and you can walk through mm. into other realities so it taught me to never presume anything about anywhere or anybody you can have no judgment or presumption because nothing is as it seems mm. um, and when you saw these scenes like of mountaintops and and fields and things did did you feel that those were real places that you were somehow tuning into or were they more like metaphors or symbols of something I think they were more um, more had a more of a dreamlike quality mm. much, much finer it's a very translucent feel about them as well and um, and yet sometimes it would happen to me and uh, I, I would I would go into a scene uh, completely different so I'd be sitting in a room and then I would be um, at a site where an airplane an aircraft had crashed or a ferry had gone down and there were people in the water and I would be telling people they were dead um, and helping them and it was very vivid uh, and the next day I, I would tell my husband uh, I'm sort of jumping ahead of time here and that I'd remarried but I'd left Tony and had a different relationship so these events I would I would tell my husband Richard and I've had this extraordinary experience I've seen this and then it would be on the news either the next day or the day after mm. it, it, it would happen that event would happen. So, so you were actually visualizing it and interacting with it before it happened. Before it happened. Yeah. Beyond. So this whole concept of time, you know, time is just a constraint we use, isn't it? Really, yeah. and it's very necessary. But there is a place that is absolutely beyond time. 
right. and so I was experiencing that. But 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 back after the accident in those early weeks and months, I didn't know what the heck was going on. Really, I, I at some point I thought maybe I was going mad, you know, that I was going insane because. You know, the person who would attack me was hearing voices and had been instructed to kill me. And here am I hearing voices. But yeah. the things, things that I was hearing were so loving and so utterly, um, they made such sense. And there was no harm in them. There was no, uh, it, it was for my learning, nothing else. It was for me to learn. And the more I was learning uh, and the more I do learn about the mysteries of this thing called life, the, the less I realize I know it. it. It's just extraordinary. You know, it gets bigger and my awareness of it, it just seems so, uh, it's so exciting because you just never know what's going to be revealed next. Mm. You, you never know. Did you feel that this Veritas uh, entity was an entity? Uh, <laughs> d distinct from you in some way, like some you know higher being or some such thing, or did you feel like it was sort of your own inner essence uh, speaking to you, or you know that you were tapping into? Well, I would say, who are you? Who are you? You'd say that to and Veritas. To Veritas, and then he would say, I know who I am. The important thing here is for you to know who you are. Yeah. So he would always, he would always turn it round on me right. and. It was um, elusive. Um, I, I never saw a form. Mm -hmm. I only heard. I only heard him, and I felt his presence. Did I you hear it. it sort of like an actual auditory voice, as yes. if you had yeah. a speaker playing in your yes. ear? Okay, so it Absolutely. wasn't just like a subtle intuition. It was more like, hey, Julie, this, you know, yeah. really clear. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly, when I was very, very small, um, I can remember in, uh, I can re my first memory um, is of people speaking to me and these voices uh, chatting away to me and feeling very comfortable and not feeling like a child when I was speaking to them at all, but feeling that I was their friend. And, right, yeah. um, and, and so I had had the experience of the voices in the ear if you, um, and it was very, very much... Um, an external source of sound. It wasn't sound within me. Mm -hmm. uh. ah. Okay, so um, so let's maybe we should go a little bit chronologically. You you came out of the hospital and and you you know your whole life had shifted and this whole new dimension had opened up and you were seeing through people and seeing through things and trying to make sense of it all. You know so you know maybe chart the course of the last 20 years how how have things progressed for you um you know and what have been the significant realizations or milestones or methods that you've used to sort of accomplish this making sense right well i suppose the the burning question i had was why why did something like that have to happen to me um and back to your very astute point that if if back in that spiritualist association, a, a stranger who had, could say to me, you know, in his mediumistic state, change your front door. Why didn't he say, don't let anyone, don't let any strange strangers in your house in the next few days? Yeah. Um, how come? So I, uh, my first thought was, uh, when, I, when I really contemplated that, clearly it was meant to happen. You know? Yeah, and he was he was only given as much information as 
was allowed. needed to actually save your life, but it wasn't part of the plan for you to uh, avert that uh, experience. Exactly, Rick. Exactly that. And that made me so curious and, and for a while quite angry mm -hmm. because, you know, there is the human side that, there, I, you know, I was a young woman and I'd been stabbed in my face, my neck, my hands, my body. Um, it wasn't pretty, you know, yeah. and I, I, there were not, and, and I felt um, very sad that that had happened to me. And then this other part of me thought, well, hey, you know, you are not your body. Right. You're not. You are so much more than that. You know that now. Um, so I decided that I. And you I didn't really know that until this happened. No, no. I mean, I think we hoped. I, I, we as human humanity hope there's something more, but how can you know? Yeah, it was just a vague speculation. But then with this incident, it was an actual experience. It was an actual experience. That's it. And yeah. so I thought I. I, I I've got to find out what following your highest truth means. Mm -hmm. So I wound my business down and got rid of it. I finished my relationship in a very um, loving way. And it, Tony is still one of my greatest friends to this day. And it set him off, incidentally, on his spiritual quest um, because he too was asking much bigger questions. Mm -hmm. um, and we parted amicably. I met Richard who was a fellow adventurer, uh, spiritually speaking, and wanted to know um, that there was more to life than his business life and the world that he was in. And we sold up um, everything that we had, and we said, well, let's just follow the wind here. Let's just go with the, let's see what, let's see what unfolds. And Veritas was saying to me that I had to have, I, I needed to just trust that everything I needed would come to me, mm -hmm. you know, and, and when the pupil is ready, the master will come. And I thought, I have to find a teacher. I have to find somebody who can explain to me what is happening here. So I did, I, I, I went on a number of courses in the UK that I thought might give me some idea, you know, so these sort of personal growth and development courses, which were good but in they were good in that they gave me kind of intellectual understanding and interesting books to read and contacts but they didn't touch on anything like the depth that I needed to to, to know um, and I and I was thinking well is there such a thing as an enlightened master is there somebody with this light of truth shining out of them actually alive on this earth and I got really excited at the thought of that I could find somebody who knew who was in physical form um, and Veritas seemed to be encouraging that that I would I would find a teacher uh, uh, that uh, and the suggestion was that if I if I just followed the signs I would be taken to the right places so thus began a 20 something year long adventure of saying okay show me reveal to me Reveals to me what I need to do and where I need to be. I, a, a complete surrender of everything that I had up to that point believed in and under um, wanting to understand and under wanting to live a life where I could find that love again. A love for myself with a capital S and a love for myself with a small s in this little physical body here, this little Frankenstein's bride body, 
and a love for humanity and uh, compassion and an understanding. So I, that was my quest. And we decided, Richard and I, that we didn't want to stay in the UK anymore. We wanted to, we felt that the business world was getting very greedy, very corrupt. Um, we wanted no part of that, which was quite courageous at the time because there weren't many people thinking like that. Um, we wanted to understand more about um, organic farming, um, living a very simple life, treading lightly upon this earth. So um, Richard uh, had a, a um, I can't use chance meeting because I don't think anything's by chance, but he, he bumped into um, someone from his past who s asked him what he was doing and he said, well, you know, we're just about to head off on an adventure. I don't know where we're going to go. And she said, well, you know what? My neighbor's got a farm in northern Spain, and they're looking for someone to take care of it for a year um, because they, they need to go off. Would you be interested? And he said, yes. Can we meet them? And we did, and we agreed, and we we began our life um, on a new level in in Spain, on a hillside in a beautiful stone farmhouse with no telephone, <laughs> no computer, no neighbors. Um, and I started to practice meditating there, really, because I hadn't. Did I'd you never... learn it formally, or just kind of figured it? Out? Did it figured it out on your own and did something? I figured it out. I figured it out because I just knew that uh, the only way I could hear Veritas ever is if I got very quiet and very still. Right. And if, I could, if I could just still all the thoughts, you know, all the shopping list stuff that goes around in one's head every day. Mm -hmm. And I found this hillside a marvelous place for that. So I just sit on this terrace overlooking Mediterranean hillside with the ocean below, and mm. I would get very still and very quiet. And but you were um, in northern Spain. You said the Mediterranean yes. is in southern Spain, isn't it? No, all the way. Uh, the, the whole coast goes up to the border of Catalonia, okay. Bar Barcelona, up in that uh, the northeastern region of Spain, okay. which yeah. borders onto France and. The wonderful French Pyrenees, mystical mm. mountains. So, I uh, started to practice on a daily basis, being quiet, which is quite hard for my little mind, <laughs> to say the least. And um, and and the only company we had were books. Y you know, we did. I mean, can you? It's hard, I think, now for younger people to imagine a life without internet. Yeah. Without just plugging in and looking up anything you you want in the great library and the ethers. But then we had nothing just a few books and a very, very simple home and life. And um, as the way these things happen, we had friends come to stay and this, 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 this friend, they bought an unexpected guest with them and this person had some books with him and he said, I'm going to leave them with you. And we started reading and they were amazing books. Mm -hmm. They were just perfect. And they were written by a lady called uh, Mary Margaret Moore and they were called the Bartholomew teachings. Hmm. And this was channeled wisdom. So it was very much like Veritas speaking. It yeah. sounded like absolutely it was Veritas. It was my my guide was speaking through these books. That's what it felt like. It was so familiar. And the wisdom was absolutely what I had been experiences in these in the dreams and and I just uh, devoured the books, as did, as did Richard. We just loved them. And then we thought, we've got to meet this person. We've got to 
be able to be in the presence of this and hear this this wisdom and so you know I think when you're on the spiritual quest you you make big efforts to get places and to meet people um like you know setting up technology can sometimes be a big effort yeah <laughs> and uh, and 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 we we got in touch we wrote to uh and we we actually got a letter got through and we found out that uh Mary Margaret Moore gave um um it's like conferences that you could go to seminars and you could hear Bartholomew speak and so she was coming to England and so we went and we and we 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 went to one of these seminars and it was fantastic this was the first time I really connected I felt this is it you know all these other courses and books were quite superficial because I think you know it for years now anyone can go and do a course for a weekend and kind of set themselves up as some sort of wisdom guru um, and everyone's got a, a they've got a piece of the picture for sure but I wanted someone who had an overview who had the you had many pieces one was not enough um, and I found in the teachings of Bartholomew just so much um, was it merely philosophical or did it somehow um, provide you with tools to you know experience whatever it was that w it was talking about it was um, experiential mm -hmm. to be in the presence that, that there was a, a very definite awaking, awakening of one's spiritual energies a raising of one's awareness and when you were with tools, this woman yes and then the, yeah. and then Bartholomew um, in, in kind of in the, the energy that spoke through her um, gave just it was so pragmatic and so humorous and gave wonderful guidelines for life living stuff that you could use on when you came back home sure for, and yeah. for, for being in the supermarket and being in the right. queue and, and the traffic jams as well as being immersed in bliss so when you say that you were looking for a spiritual master was that the, the fulfillment of that quest right there or are there more ch chapters to this? There are more chapters to this. It was it, it was the it was the um, beginning mm -hmm. of something uh, of an understanding of a of a master and um, a pupil relationship and great respect. But the whole of the Bartholomew teachings were only to it was a, called an experiment in consciousness, mm -hmm. and they were only going to be for a limited amount of time because Bartholomew expressed that he did not want people to be dependent upon him he simply wanted us to know how to access it within ourselves right. and therefore it was um, not going to be available for that long mm -hmm. and so we followed it through until its conclusion <clears throat> and we went to New Mexico for a, a final gathering which was a very emotional time actually to to be in the presence of something that you know was going to go yeah. and not be so available and <clears throat> of course um, I realized that it's so easy isn't it to even when we have these amazing experiences of of one's truth of one's highest truth and it's easy to lose that state it just like I was on the staircase in and out in and out mm -hmm. sure. and it you know the flashes of brilliance come and then they go and we fall and we and we get set back and you know and, and what is it 
the other thing that intrigued me is what is it? Why can't you just go up to a human being and say, hey, what? You know what? You've got the light of God blazing in your heart. You know, get a life. Let's let's love each other. But it doesn't happen, does it? What? So, so why um, can't we access it? And and what is it that's covering and covering this light? And and how significant is that? So I still had many questions. Um, that were not answered, and I needed to understand more of the, the the whole philosophical structure of of why life is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And so, how did you uh, accomplish that? Well, I knew that I was sort of after Bartholomew. I kind of lost the plot for a while, I think, and was I seemed to lose my contact with Veritas as well, mm. and uh, got caught up back in the need to have some money and um, family issues that were happening and a lot of sad things happened uh, knocked me knocked me from my state of knowing big time and so at this point St Tony um, my ex-partner came to stay with us uh, in northern Spain uh, a couple of years down the line and he'd been to India he'd gone as a doctor to, to offer his services in, um, in, in an ashram, mm -hmm. um, but to offer his medical uh, expertise. A patient had recommended that it would be good for him to do that. He had no idea that it was a spiritual community with a, with a master. He simply uh, had gone there. Uh, he laughs now, you know, he's like with blinkers on. He didn't sort of see that there were monks wandering around and chants going on and, and um, great meditation sessions. And he, But he was just doing his doctor thing. And then bumping into this um, rather amazing um, teacher and having little chats, you know, thinking it was perfectly normal to do that. <laughs> and uh, I think about, about four weeks into his experience, it, it dawned on him that this was just no ordinary place he was in and extraordinary things were happening around him. And he experienced a lot of healing around the guilt that he had felt for what had happened to me. Uh -huh and some of the pain got released and he came from that ashram to us and stayed with us in in northern spain and he um bought with him a, a tape of a mantra mm -hmm. and a, and a photograph of this indian saint and we put the mantra on almost immediately and i i just had to go and lie down I Is that the written Jaya mantra by any chance? It was uh, no, it was Om Namah Shivaya. Uh -huh. And uh, um, who was the saint, by the way? It was um, it was Guru Mai Chidvalasananda oh, right. um, of Siddha right. Yoga. Right. Oh. Okay. So we played this, um, which considered a living saint in in India. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we put this mantra on, and I, I I just felt so strange. I had to go and lie down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember it was an afternoon, and I lay in this room. <clears throat> the mantra was still playing, and then it, it it ran out and it stopped, and I just lay on the bed and and I started to feel my whole body kind of vibrating and shaking, and then uh, the the room filled with the most intense light, and I heard Veritas again, ah. and I hadn't heard that voice you know for about a year. Mm -hmm. And I heard it again. And I just remember sort of saying, 
there you are. Where have you been? And then he just went, no, where have you been? Right. <laughs> so, um, and I knew then that was obviously there was some great reconnection going on and um, the next phase of my journey began. Is Veritas a, a man or a woman or, new, or kind of asexual? I wouldn't, I, I, asexual. Right, okay. Just curious. Okay, the next phase of your journey. Yep. What, what was that? Well, I then um, read the books that were offered. The Guru Maya um, books. Yeah, Siddhi Yoga. Uh -huh. and, and I found that they were not just words on a, on a page, that they weren't just an intellectual process. I found they took me back to this place beyond my body. They seemed to go into very deep states of meditation and contemplation, and they were um, a key that opened the door again. Mm -hmm. I loved it and I devoured them and just kept reading them and playing this mantra. And then I, I felt sad that we had no picture of, of, of this, this beautiful, you know, Indian Swami. I mean, her, her eyes were so extraordinary, and I wanted to paint her eyes so I'd have something I could look at and I wanted to paint her face so I, I spent a, a day sort of creating her and I'm no artist I put, but, but I captured something and then I would just keep looking at these eyes and they'd draw me in um, in the most beautiful tender way uh, and I found that all of the um, dreams, the experiences the the meditations, everything started again. It's like mm -hmm. the energy in me had been reignited mm -hmm. and was taking me even deeper in, into myself. So I knew then that it's very difficult, isn't it, Rick, really? Because you've kind of got to be in this world, but not of it. You have, you have to live and um, um, relate to everybody. And many people can't talk about this sort of stuff and they don't want to, and I would never impose it on anybody. So there's that the secret life, a secret inner life, and then an outer life. That yeah, in a way, uh, it depends on the company you keep, but it, and that sort of depends on where you are. I mean, the the Vedic literature emphasizes very strongly that the the you know the company of the enlightened, so to speak, is a very powerful technique for evolution, for you know, for spiritual enlightenment in and of itself. Just hanging around with the right people, absolutely. kind of the, the energy of that kind of. Um, you know, in trains with your own energy and, and ra raises you up. And it's and a very I'm dense world, you know, in, in most quarters, it's a very concrete, dense world, which, you know, tends to overshadow a person, uh, especially if there's, uh, if it's a very fledgling sort of realization, I think, that the person has had, uh, it's easily overshadowed. And it takes a long time, per in many cases, to really stabilize it so it can't be shaken by anything. You're so right, You're so right, and I, I, I guess you're just describing the process I was going through. I was being shaken and, and convinced, sometimes even convinced that, you know, as I've said, that I, I was really losing the plot and not, um, I was not like other people, and I needed to, you know, people would say to me, "Come on, get a grip, I, you know, get get real, <laughs> and get a job, and and, and get do," but we were living. A life with uh, as much integrity as we could possibly have, and uh, and I, 
I needed to understand that company was is very, very important. And I still hadn't learned the lesson that no, you could say no to us. You know, I'd, be, I'd been born in that time where women were much about pleasing other, you know, you, 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 you sort of be flexible around everybody else's needs. And that was very much my personality. And so I was doing it to a very large extent. And even moving abroad hadn't changed that because that was something in, in my, that I obviously have needed to work on in this. And so I began to write my story. I began to write of the experiences and I wrote A Stranger in Paradise. As, uh, of course, it was, it was cathartic to do so, but it also helped me put it into some sort of context and perspective and to have my sense of humor about what had happened because I found that people talked to me about being stabbed everything, anything other than a great long face and, um, you know, oh, you poor thing, this whole victim, you, you poor, poor thing, it must have been so terrible. Um, and yeah, on one level it was, but on another level it was amazing. It was just so amazing. And I knew I had to get that down somehow and, and, and get it into a better balance mm -hmm. because I couldn't ever talk about it very well. I'm, it was easier to write it down and then I could put all the different strands together to build a fuller picture. Yeah, you're talking um, about it pretty well now. I may, you maybe you've had a lot of practice. And I always feel I'm very clumsy when I speak about no, it. No, you're doing great. I think everyone will really uh, find find this interesting. I thought the the book was very nicely written too, very easy to read. I, well, I tried my best to make it just keep moving and not wallow in in in, yeah. in too much in any area. So, this thing about keeping good company by by writing the book that took me then on a whole new level of experience of being a published author mm -hmm. and being invited to speak and I did I did quite a lot of work with victims of violence and got involved with some charities in the UK and spoke on their behalf um, years I traveled and spoke at length and the book got published in other languages and got distributed in different English-speaking parts of the world and it just led to an extraordinary journey which hasn't stopped actually mm -hmm. of of being invited to speak about different aspects of the story. Yeah, but here until you are talking to me. <laughs> this is the first time, this is the first time, Rick, that I'm speaking to you, I kind of, I, I would say uncensored. Hmm. I'm not here, I'm not here to speak on behalf of I don't have to be aware of certain things that have to be raised in this conversation. I'm not, that book is, you know, what is it, 15 years old? I'm not, it's, it's done its thing. I have no agenda. And you're the first person who's wanted to speak to me about my spiritual journey, which yeah. I'm finding interesting. Yeah. Um, and, well, that's, and that's the thing that I'm mainly interested in, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people get stabbed and shot and, and you know, all that, and, but not that many have, you know, a spiritual experience out of it, you know, and, and at least that I know of, although many do, I suppose. There's, all, there's some very interesting near-death experiences, but, you know, that's the angle that really kind of, you know, caught my eye. And I guess you, you originally contacted me, didn't you? You saw the show and you said, hey, Rick, you know, or did I contact no. you somehow? I forget how this happened. No, I, 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 I'd not, I didn't know of you, and um, you contacted me, and I think someone wrote to you about me. That, that was so, yeah, that happens. People recommend people that I should speak with, and so I get in touch with you, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, 
however it happened I'm glad it did and it's yeah. not over so um so okay so that you you started listening to all the guru might uh you know and, and Siddha, Siddha yoga uh, tapes and re reading the books and all that and that kind of rekindled your your awareness and and you you know you were back in touch with veritas and then you were starting to serve by helping other victims of violence so so take it from there okay yes yeah, so I, I appreciated that there was a, a huge need in me to give something back mm -hmm. and to give back something positive and to I wanted to 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 talk about violence and all of the associated things and to see what could be done in a practical way to improve the way victims of violence were treated to improve understanding um, to look at things like compassion and forgiveness in light so I, I have a bit of a lady on a mission really it, it felt very much um, I used to get so frustrated about the negativity that one reads in the media and on the news etc and I thought you never hear you just never hear about positive things coming out of this because like all the sages say you know with any event you can ask yourself what have I lost what have I gained what have I learned There's always a positive you could but you have to be guided to find it and so I found myself getting more and more involved in that and at the same time in my own journey realizing that it wasn't about becoming an author becoming recognized about numbers it, if I could help one person um, if I could just help one person come to a place of peace, then something good will have come out of one. And I, I, when I when I got published, I, I went through this phase of thinking that somehow, unless the book's a bestseller, and I was very fired up with the with the publisher as well. You know, there's a lot of expectation from a publisher, and you you are asked you have in your contract you have to do a lot of publicity and appearances and I didn't enjoy that at all mm. because I didn't want to be flogging a book I wanted to be helping people come to understanding about what greatness lay within their hearts mm -hmm. so there was a big conflict during that period and I found then that's a, again when I'd lost my lost lo one of those times where I lost touch with with my truth and I found the teachings of Siddha Yoga, I realized that one has to have discipline. On the spiritual path, you need to do your practices, you need to tune in, you need to meditate, you need to make time for that inner space to speak to you. And that is the most important thing. Yeah. There is nothing else. It is the greatest reason that we're here. The only reason we're here is to know what's within us. And if we don't make time, I found, if I didn't make time to honor that, then life went back into what I call two-dimensional, you know, yin-yang, back-forward, right-wrong, black-white, all the polarity, just swinging up and down on that pendulum of polarity, which is very boring and incredibly exhausting. So I had to keep climbing up the pendulum pole and getting onto the pivotal point, you know, of stillness and, and having my overview again. And I found that the teachings that were within Siddha Yoga, it, it, it is my path. It's, it, it's, I, I, I didn't have to look anymore. I found what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And to this day, it is my um, spiritual nourishment, I think, is how I would describe it. Okay. You know? And it's a very private thing, actually. I've never publicly said this before. And, but, that, but I feel that my hand is held... You know, my, I, I have my hand held in 
very firmly established in that path mm -hmm. and then I can I can put the other hand out into the world and not get pulled in yeah if that makes sense you know uh -huh. I feel then I'm anchored I'm anchored in something so strong um, yeah yeah I mean um, I was around in the days when Muktananda was uh, in the facility sure. right next door to where I was staying. I was staying in the TM facility and he was right next door in South Fallsburg, New York, staying there. And he used to walk down the road with his little ski cap on. And, and I, I read all of his books and everything. And uh, some you know, friends of mine got involved in, with that. And, you know, it's like with any organization, and I can hear people saying, oh, yeah, Siddha Yoga, they've had, you know, Muktananda was doing this and there were these scandals and controversies and, all, and so on. Um, and you can almost find that with anything, any organization, regardless of how, uh, if, you know, how good it may be on the whole. Uh, but, you know, with, with most of them, I mean, tomorrow I'm going to interview a guy who's a leader of the Hare Krishna organization, who is a fascinating guy who's written a marvelous book. And, you know, they've had their kind of scandals and controversies. But it seems to me that if, you know, in every example I can think of, Osho is another example, in every example I can think of, you know, if you sort of like go to the heart of it and discover the sort of essential value that it has to offer, um, you can benefit from that thing. I mean, maybe there are some that are so extreme that you wouldn't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole no matter what, but most of the well-known spiritual organizations and traditions you know, TM, Siddha Yoga, um, you know, the Krishna people, all these things have you, when you get to sort of s meet some of the people in them, you realize that these are incredible people and really wonderful and they've found a path that works for them and that has been, you know, very enlightening for them. And there are some real shining examples of, of you know, what these paths have to offer. And then, you know, as with any organization, it, they attract all types, and you also have some oddballs and some, you know, <laughs> and some, some characters and some, you know, troublemakers sure. and so on and so forth. But it's, <coughs> it's good to learn not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and to, and to sort of like, if Think you find so, a path. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, everything you say, you, you, one has to enter into any relationship with, with, um, with great care. Mm -hmm. And test, I think all, all teachers must be tested. You know, yeah. you have to you have to teachings against your own heart, and I feel that for each one of us, it, ultimately, it's down to your own experience. You stand in the presence of a teacher, and it's what you experience. And I couldn't and wouldn't speak for anybody else. And I'm not advocating any path for anybody, really. That there are as many ways as there are human beings, I think. Yeah. Um, and we're totally free to choose. Totally free. Um, but for me, it was down to my own experience being in that presence. And if you go into the core of all of the teachings, the Maharishi, Osho, Ramana Maharshi, I, I just love them all. I think they've, they've each had um, their own interpretation of aspects of, of yoga. And um, they have different ways of, uh, some of them are really fun and way out there. <laughs> and, and, and I guess, you know, they were right for some people at that time. Um, um, but when you find what you're looking for, you know, you just know. It's because yeah. there is no more searching. Right. And right. so 
you know, and I've been very curious. I've for, for very many years I was searching up, you know, up mountain, down dale, different countries, different teachings, different types of th things, and then suddenly, bang, I I found what I needed. Yeah. And I and I've never, yeah. And and I but I, you know I have no desire um, to shut myself away or live the ashramic life. That, that's not my destiny at all. Right. And I think there's so much confusion in in people, don't you? That you've kind of got to shut yourself away from the world to... Um, I, I mean, I hear what you say about there are very dense, dark corners, and it can be a bit like you know, running through treacle at times. Someone once said a slug fencing with lightning, <laughs> you know, the, the little self trying to cope with the spiritual energy um, and the shakti. But I, I sense that one can be in this world and really live a, a shining life um, with, yeah with I think the monastic thing the ashram life definitely has its value if it's right for you at that particular time in your life I mean I've done years of that myself um, and then at other times or for other people it's not right you know so there's just no one universal prescription and all these you kind of you know you find the niche that that works for you that's right and I and I think also, there is a great tendency to uh, easy in this day and age to run around from one teaching to another, from one guru to the next, and this course to that course, and another franchise. And, and um, a very beautiful friend of mine who is a monk said, "It's a bit like eating off a schmuckers board. You know, you you try everything, and uh, but you do end up if you overdo it, and you know, in a few hours you're hungry again." Yeah. And there's the, there's the analogy of, you know, better to dig one well that's 100 feet deep than 10 wells that are only 10 feet deep. You know, you, you sort of, you're more likely to strike water if you dig a deep one. So being, being a dilettante is not always a good thing. But then again, you know, we can't take an absolute position. For some people, it may be appropriate to sort of shop around and taste a whole lot of different things. And, uh, you know, maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm sort of doing that in a way these days, although I have my own practice. I really love kind of delving into all these different worlds uh, of the people that I interview and listening to them, you know, reading their books and just kind of exploring uh, all well, the various ways of seeing and, and expressing this. And you would have to be very open about what you do. And, I, and in the same way, although I've found my path, it doesn't mean that I don't have great interest and love for other paths, because I do. And I mean, I, I've absolutely, the first uh, spiritual book I ever read um, after being stabbed, I, I heard the word, again, like the shouting in the ear. One morning I woke up and I heard, it's, it's like Veritas saying, Avatar, Avatar. And I thought, what does this mean, Avatar? I mean, I, mean, again, I didn't know what the word meant then. No, there were no movies uh, called <laughs> Avatar. And I spoke to a very lovely friend of mine, a man called Noel, who is a very wise, gorgeous man. And he said, um, read Yogananda. And, uh, you know, read Autobiography of a Yogi, which I think is many people's first book, actually. Right. Such a beautiful book. And I, I read it, and I, I completely fell in love with Yogananda. Mm -hmm. I just felt so much love. But I never felt that that, that was going to be my path. Right. But I read every book written of that, of his teachers. Wow. Of, you know, I've been, um, I've been in, the, in the States. I've visited... And I absolutely love it there. And I have a, 
great soul connection. And yet it, it didn't call me in the sense of being um, somehow the teachings that were igniting me. Right. So, but it, but I have oh immense love for for that particular path, sure. and and my you know and the Maharishi too. So I have my life has and my quest has has taken me into some incredible areas and extraordinary teachers. I had one um, here in Spain. There's a, a young man who is a healer, and he's not known on the world stage at all, but he's known locally in. Andalusia, um, and I asked if I could meet him because I'd heard that hundreds of people go to him and that miracles happen around him. A bit like John of God, you know, he's he's one of these people that. So, and I went when I um, when I met him, I I could feel when I'm in the presence of somebody who has a lot of God's light shining through them, I always feel the great heat when I stand near them. And I remember he was standing in a crowd of people talking to them and he was actually in robes uh, as, as a monk as a priest or um and he uh, uh, and i stood and i thought good grief that I, I felt such inner heat I, and he suddenly turned around and he said to me in spanish if you stay there much longer we're going to start a forest fire <laughs> so, so he clearly was aware of what i was experiencing behind his back and yeah. to cut a long story very short, uh, I actually, with my husband, we, we, we actually went and lived in, in the area, which is an area where people live in caves still. It, it was a troglodyte community in, in, a, in inland Andalusia, very, very, very strange and ancient landscape. And we lived and, and uh, spent nearly six months um, listening to the teachings with the view of maybe writing for him, writing his story and his teachings um, so you know I was very drawn to do that and to be spend six months in a very intensely Catholic young man mm -hmm. but even though he was a healer very very Catholic yeah. but so wise and so amazing beautiful being mm. full of fun yeah so the yeah. so the adventure continues yeah and yeah, I, I have a I have an idea maybe one day in my dotage I will write of my spiritual adventures well, it's it's good you're saying this. The adventure continues because sometimes when you you say, "Well, the seeking stopped," sometimes that implies to people that the adventure stops or that the finding stops, you know, or that they just sort of sit on their laurels and you know contemplate their navel or something. But um, <laughs> you know, I think it can it can be quite the opposite. I mean, the 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 mystery of life hasn't gone away, and and the you know the depth and clarity to which one can on you know experience things still has great potential and you know there's there's all sorts of possibilities it's just that the i i mean at least just a sort of yawning you know yearning craving lost feeling that that i associate with the word seeking has gone away you know on, and on a kind of yeah. a foundation of on a foundation of, of knowing and contentment one continues to explore yeah, my seeking has now got a structure around it, and I I I understand more the process of being a seeker, and I the structure has been created by the path that I've found my refreshment and my comfort and my guidance. Um, so the adventure can continue in an even greater way, and it is supreme adventure. It really is, you know, and it's taking taking what is within and being able to put it 
out there into the everyday situations. The thing is that that's what I find so utterly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and of late, I've been um, exploring forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is the thing that really calls me. Um, because I feel that, in fact, of Yogananda, he said that the, the, the physical world is held together by the mortar of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So the implication of that is so huge. Um, you do you know, feel without like forgiving. Do you feel like you've without, completely forgiven the woman who stabbed you? I feel that now there's nothing to forgive. Hmm. You, you know, because it's part of a design that was exquisite. Mm-hmm. For me, for her, probably, for everybody involved. It was a part of a soul's design. It did have to happen. Hmm. And I, you know a place of great understanding and peace within myself about that yeah. and I've, I I really don't have any um, I don't really think about this woman very much but if I do think about her uh, or like today we're talking about it I don't get um, anything other than a sense of I just wish her well mm-hmm. in her life yeah do you feel uh, um, you still have this connection with Veritas is that a, a big thing for you still or is that you know something in the past I still have the connection with Veritas, but it has perhaps a slightly different form in that I don't hear it so much now. I just have this knowing arise within me. Mm-hmm. It, it's, not, it's not the it's external more subtle. voice. It's yeah, it's, go, it's gone on to a more subtle level. Yeah. And again, I still have to, have to be very focused and centered and still within myself to experience him, mm-hmm. her, it. it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, what I find is that, that uh, and I think this is happening for a lot of people now too, that the connection between the thought and the manifestation is so fast. Mm. You know, I, I think something and it's there. I think of a person and, and, and I just find that that knowing, that literally now is much more subtle um, in that understanding arises within me much more quickly mm-hmm. um, and stays for longer. And I'm far more careful about the company I keep. <laughs> right. And you're not so much in this syndrome of I got it, I lost it. You know, in other words, you don't get caught up so much or forget this. Is, is it more stable now? More. Yes, it is. Yeah. Much more stable. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And. Uh, and I, I feel, it's very difficult. It's difficult now if I'm asked to give a talk. I, I just can't, I can't actually do things to order anymore like that. I just have to stand there and whatever will come out of me will come out of me in the moment. It depends on the room, the people. The, the, you know, I just have to trust it. I just don't anymore. I, if I do speak, I, I speak from the heart. And I only, if I'm invited, I don't try to order a speaker, you know, or I don't right. run, I don't, I, I don't market anything. <laughs> Veritas Inc. Um, no, but but from time to time, if I'm invited, like you invited me, I'll speak. But I don't do any preparation. Right. Maybe I should. Uh, no, there are a lot of very articulate teachers who don't do any preparation, like Eckhart Tolle and Adyashanti and so on. They just kind of get up there and start talking, and it just comes. And it's perfect. I've listened to Eckhart. I've been in his presence too. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, again, the truth is the truth, and there are all these fine instruments that express truth on, the, yeah. on our earth. Aren't we lucky? 
aren't we lucky? Yeah. Humanity has great people out there to help us. Well, it's a good thing there's an abundance of us because there's 7 billion people on the planet, and I don't think one person could handle it all. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good news. Some people, it's you know, when they speak of a spiritual awakening, they speak of a sort of a, a shift to a sense that, you know, there is no personal s identity. There, there's sort of an impersonal, um, you know, being, and, and talking happens, and eating happens, and sleeping happens, and doing happens, but there's no person who is making them happen. Uh, and and they and they insist that that really is the nature of realization. Um, have you had anything of that nature or any tastes or flavors of that? Yes, I think um, I I would call that being in the state of the witness, uh -huh. where you know, it's it's the word I've been using is overview. It's getting to that place where, um, you know, I, I sometimes say things even during this interview, and I'm thinking, well, where did that come from? <laughs> And I find myself laughing. It just comes from inside, and there is this part of me that watches that with great good humor. And then there's this other part that sort of sometimes worries that it's not doing it right, or you know, the humanness. So, yeah, the the the, the no the place of no identity mm -hmm. when one just is, I suppose, a totally clear, clean, um, hollow flute. Yeah, yeah, through which melody can be played. Um, yeah, something like that, and I, yeah. I do, so I do, I know that state, and I love it, and 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 more, more and more, I I can attune to that, mm -hmm. and, and and I'm finding less and less about day-to-day -day life troubles me, getting more equanimity in my old age. Yeah. <laughs> you're not so old. I think you're younger than I am. <coughs> I want to ask you how old though. You can. I don't mind. There's only a body. Uh, how old are you? I'm 56. Uh, I'll oh, be yeah, 57. You're just, you're just a kid. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you just you just made my body's day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have any sort of lingering uh, uh, handicaps from the trauma? Uh, I mean, physical. You know, can you use your right hand properly now? I mean, you mentioned it was took a long time to rehabilitate that. Uh, it's it's not as it was, and I had yeah. to give up. All, I, I was a great sportswoman, uh -huh. and I, I love playing squash, golf, uh, yeah. tennis. I, I can't do any of that because uh, the right hand isn't as dexterous as it used to be, and its yeah. grip has, has gone. And I don't think it. I don't find it fun to play those sports. I was at a pretty high level, and and it's not fun to. I don't enjoy it. You know, because yeah. the, like the golf club flies out of my hand after a bit, and which is like exceedingly dangerous. Mm. So I probably killed somebody. And I used to play the piano, um, not that well, but I could play the piano, and and I can't do that anymore. Mm. Um, so the the thing is, though, you know, you have to lose some things, but other other then I figure, okay, well, I can learn to do something else. Yeah. So you should take up skiing or skydiving or something. Sure, bungee jumping, that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think as a human being, it, it, one has to keep that enthusiasm for life. And there, there's always something else. I mean, if we get rigid in, 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 in only doing it one way, uh, we become real boring old what's-its, don't we? Um, so I think through what happened to me, it taught me also that I have to, you can reinvent yourself. No harm done. 
it's yeah. a good thing to do it's actually a it's a great thing to do and it's so exciting because you know tomorrow i can be something different i can try something new and the creation is infinite there are so the possibilities are endless for for exploring and experiencing love yeah and laughter and friendship i like to sort of go ahead as i say rick one of the things about you know of almost losing life really gets what's important in life it puts it back into perspective mm. you know and you um in the end i mean it's said over and over but i really know it now that all i really care about is when when i lay down my head to 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 go in this lifetime i do hope it's a peaceful passing i think i've done the violence bit <laughs> um that's that's the only time left um, so I probably won't get that. Anyway, when I do go, I want to be able to say that I have no regrets, no unfinished business, and that I really loved to possibly could. Uh, repeat that last sentence because there, there was a glitch in the audio. We missed most of that sentence where you said, I really want to, and then there was a big long gap, and it said possibly could. So what did you just say? That I would like to... Uh, um, have no regrets, uh -huh. no, unfinished, no unfinished business with anybody, and that I will know that I have loved to the fullest capacity that I possibly could. Mm. Good. Well, that's yeah. beautiful. That that might be a good note to end on. Uh, but if you have anything more that you'd like to say that I haven't elicited from you, um, this would be mm. the time. Is there anything kind of like that we haven't really thought to talk about that you'd like to mention? Um, there is nothing that comes to my mind. Uh, I, not really. But what, I would, what I'd say is that I, I will, if, if you have any questions that come to you or anybody asks a question that's unanswered, I, I'm always be available to answer that. Yeah, I will. Um, on, when I put your interview up on the website, batgap.com, there'll be a link to your website and to your email address if you want it on there. And uh, people can get in touch with you. And very often, almost every single one of these interviews, a discussion ensues afterwards uh, on each person's page where there's a little place where you can post a comment and then people reply to that. And sometimes we go on page after page of people talking about what the interview inspired in them. And uh, so that may happen with yours. And if you feel like um, chiming in, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, responding to any questions people may have or, you know, getting involved in the discussion that might ensue, then you're more than welcome to. Thank you, Rick. That would be, um, I'll, well, I'll keep my eye on that and you'll, yeah, I'm I'll sure notify you, you if something you, you comes can up. You can let me know. Yeah, that would be yeah. great. Um, Good. It's well, been thanks. really interesting to, yeah. to share this time with you. Yes, yeah, it's really been a delight um, getting to know you. We'll, we'll stay in touch. Um, so let me conclude by, th you know, I want to thank our guest, Julie Chimes, who lives in, in Spain, was originally from England, obviously. And uh, she has published a book called Stranger in Paradise. I'll have a link to that on the website if people would like to purchase that and read it. And... Uh, if you are, depending on how you're hearing this, uh, you know, you might not actually be on batgap.com. You might be listening to an audio file somebody sent you. You might be on YouTube. But if you go to batgap.com, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump, uh, B-A-T-G-A-P, you will see 
all of the interviews that I have done listed there and <coughs> you can sign up for an email if you wish to be notified each time a new one is posted. So thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you next time. Thank you.